Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Um, we want to congratulate uh, What Books Press. So let's congratulate them. Yeah, this is a launch party, you know what I'm saying? It is a launch party, so we're so very, very happy uh, to be doing this, to be supporting um, in the indie presses and to uh, have it here at an indie bookstore. And to start off the event, please welcome Chuck Rosenthal. I'm Chuck Rosenthal, and I'm kind of the managing editor <laughs> of, this, uh, of this press. Um, we are, we are an imprint of the Glass Table Collective, which is a group of artists, mostly uh, writers, but as well uh, visual artists and, f and filmmakers. Um, and this is our second list of books. We uh, had books come out last year, too. A few of them, I think a few of them are up here. Origin of Stars by Kate Haig, Lizard Dream by Karen Kevorkian, and uh, my... Hmm? Bling and Fringe by Molly Bendall and Gail Ronsky, and uh, my book of magic journalism, Are We Not There Yet, travels in uh, Nepal, North India, and Bhutan. Uh, tonight, we are going to be, um, you want more information about the collective, you probably should know? Okay, yes? The, all our books are designed, <laughs> all our covers are designed by Gronk. And, uh, we brought out a book of art with us this year, and we, we have some very uh, distinctive covers because of that. Is that good? Yeah. <laughs> and it's probably the most some of the most amazing art around, and we're really lucky to have them uh, that art on our books. Tonight, uh, I'll be reading briefly from my novel, which I worked on for 12 years, and it's my 10th book, Coyote O'Donohue's History of Texas. Um, Ramon Garcia. We'll be reading from other countries, a book of poems. Uh, Gail Ronsky will be reading from So Quick Bright Things, and if her tra translator arrives, there might be some Spanish readings of those poems because it is uh, a bilingual book. Um, and Gronk will be interpreting, interpreting his, <laughs> his book of art. Uh, the, the person who isn't here is uh, t Anthony Dianantis from Philadelphia, who's also a member of the collective. And uh, Master Seeger's Dream is a book about Master Seeger simultaneously set in the middle of the 12th century and the late 20th century. I'm going to read a few pages. Uh, first from the introduction of Coyote O'Donohue, which will kind of explain uh, who he is. I am Coyote O'Donohue. Comanche shaman and shapeshifter, warrior, intellectual, secretary to William B. Travis, traveling companion of General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, Harvard man. I fought against Texans in the Great Plains, fought with them at the Alamo, fought with the San Patricio Battalion in the Mexican War, fought for both the North and the South in New Mexico. I fought with Cochise and I fought against them. During my sojourn at Harvard, I spent time with a bunch called the Metaphysical Club. One of them believed that everything was in our own minds, and another didn't believe in the mind. 
One believed that the whole world was based on mathematics, and another that reality was just a bunch of signs and symbols. They could argue all night. It was after one of those meetings, sharing a cigar and rye whiskey with the notorious James brothers, William and Henry, that Billy James tried to convince me to write down my life. The Comanche don't write things down, I said. Only because they don't write, said Billy. Neither do they teach at Harvard and speak seven languages, said Henry. My mother spoke five, I said. An exception that proves the rule, said Henry James. These Harvard types were crazy about the exception that proved the rule. Everything proved the rule, including the exception, and then where are you? My mother was a language shame, and among other things, aside from Comanche, she taught me in the waddle. English, Spanish, and French. I learned Latin and ancient Greek from the Jesuits down in Mexico City all before I ever came to Harvard. You've experienced so many unique things, said Billy James. Let me offer you a syllogism, I said to those James boys. A Harvard man is to ideas as a Comanche is to horses. You love ideas, we love horses. You ride ideas, we ride horses. I could go on, but I'll end with we steal horses and you steal ideas. <laughs> Preposterous, said Henry James. I'd love to steal your ideas, said Billy James. <laughs> you had to like Billy James. He was open-minded. So I sat down and wrote this book. I wrote another one, too, My Life from Birth to Harvard. Then I let those two James brothers take a look. Reads like Twain, said Henry James. Is that a compliment? No, said Billy. I don't care for his style, said Henry. He took a long puff on his cigar, let out a bunch of smoke, nor his metaphysics. I think it's fantastic, said Billy. Precisely, said Henry. Unbelievable. Do Indians really talk to each other like that, said Billy? Comanche speak to each other in Comanche. I got as close as I could get. Anyway, you saved me a trip to Texas, said Henry James. Let me keep these, said Billy James. I'd like to show them to my editor. These are the only copies, I said. I was worried he'd already done a word raid. For now, said Billy James. Give me the night to think about it, I told him. That night, I packed up a few things, including these manuscripts, got on my horse, and headed for Texas. I'm not, uh, in not much longer, you won't be able to do something like that anymore. When I get there, I'm going to bury this first book on the plains where I buried the heart and liver of my first horse. I'll put the second one under a cottonwood tree. Then I'm going to join Quanta Parker and the Cahada Comanche for their last stand against William Tecumseh Sherman and Ronald McKenzie's 4th Cavalry. So I don't imagine anyone will ever read this. But if you do, well, it's a miracle. All right, I'm going to just, oh, thank you. <laughs> There's a lot of fighting and chasing and speaking French and Latin in this, in, in this book. But at this point, uh, Coyote O'Donohue, who, who accidentally uh, scalped the son of a famous uh, Texas Ranger, he's on the run, and he thinks he, maybe the safest place he could go would be the Alamo because who'd go there? Uh, when he gets there, when he gets to San Antonio, Santa Ana's already there, uh, and he's, he's uh, partying, and the Texans are celebrating the taking of the Alamo, and uh, they don't realize that Santa Ana's in front of them. He, so uh, Coyote is a, symp a Mexican sympathizer, so he tries to convince Santa Ana to just you know, rub out all the Texans right now, just arrest him and round him up. And Santa Ana says, I'm just going to kill you, get out of here. So he tries to convince uh, Travis to go arrest Santa Ana, and Travis won't do, do it, doesn't believe that, uh, that Santa Ana's there. So he goes and to find Bowie. 
Travis turned his head toward the floor where I saw a boot toe sticking out from under the tablecloth of the liquor table. I went over there and found James Bowie in a stupor under the table. I shook him. Colonel Bowie, I said, wake up, Santa Ana is here. Bowie raised his head, startled. He was a big man, not as big as Houston, but an inch taller than Travis and a good deal broader and older as well. Santa Ana, screamed Bowie, hurry up, surrender. Then his eyes focused on me and he suddenly relaxed. Oh, Donatelli, he said, you son of a bitch. If I could get up, I'd kill you. Uh, Coyote was in Austin masquerading as an uh, Italian merchant. That's when, that's when he first met uh, Bowie in Houston. Good thing I came in disguise. Who knows what feelings people would have had about me if they knew who I really was. Donatelli is my mother's name, I said. I use my father's name now like an American, O'Donohue. Like the Indane, said Bowie. Indane? An Indane by any other name is still an Indane, says Bo James Bowie said. Colonel Bowie, I said. Now, I, I got this routine from... Uh, Woody Allen's <laughs> love and death. Colonel Bowie, I said, Antonio Menchaca's brother-in-law is really Santa Ana. Antonio Menchaca's brother-in-law is Enrique, Enrique de la Pena, said Bowie. Captain Jose Enrique de la Pena is on Santa Ana's staff, I yelled at Bowie. I knew I'd met him down in Teotihuacan when he was, let me ride Santa Ana's stallion. You're thinking of Lieutenant Colonel Jose Enrique de la Pena, said Bowie. No, you're thinking of Lieutenant Colonel Jose Enrique de la Pena, and he's not Lieutenant Jose Enrique de la Pena, he's Santa Ana. You're making me dizzy, said Bowie. You know, I haven't felt well since the day your damn horse kicked me in the chest. If I could get up, I'd slice off your cojones. He reached vaguely for his Bowie knife, but gave up. It was an accident, I said. My ass, said Bowie. You're not going to arrest Santa Ana, I said. Arrest Antonio Menchaca's brother-in-law, Enrique de la Pena, on the night of his engagement? What are you, crazy? We're having a party. Well, I wasn't going to wander through that labyrinth again. The next time, the bull might come out and eat me. You can end the war with Mexico right now by arresting Santa Ana, I said. Right, said Bowie. Just show me where he is. He's right across the room. If I have to go through that again, I'm going to puke, said Bowie. Then we should all get our asses in the Alamo because the Mexicans are here, I said to him. Bowie lay back down on the floor and spoke to the air. The Alamo is indefensible, he said. Then blow it up and get out, I said. We can't blow it up. Why not? Because Houston said to blow it up. Who the hell is Houston telling us what to do? The commander-in-chief? Nice try, said Bowie. I should kill you, you little son of a bitch, he said. But instead he passed out. Just then there was a lot of commotion and I poked my head out from underneath the table to see Santa Ana's betrothed, Lucia Jimenez, the adopted daughter of the wealthy Tejana, Doña Santos Jimenez, slowly making her way down the long balustrade of the stairway. She was a small, delicate, round-faced Indian girl, a dark intelligence in her black eyes. She was a beautiful young woman and I recognized her immediately as Cohuya Tikan, a confederation of tribes from the Mexican north, close to rubbed out now by the Lipan Apache and the Mexican vaqueros. She was assertive, yet circumspect, and she moved down the stairs in her full-length skirt, satin gown, bare shoulders covered by a colorful Mexican silk scarf. She was deeply confident and a little shy. She waved across the hall to Santa Ana, who grinned and waved. She was smiling. She was Sam Houston's mistress, Luz. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Next our reader is Ramon Garcia. Well, we're waiting for it. At least he didn't show up. So. We're right. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, I want to thank uh, everyone in the Glass Table Collective, and especially Chuck, because even though we are a collective, Chuck ends up doing a lot of the work. <laughs> um, that's 
you know, we all do our part, but it ends up in Chuck's hands mostly. Um, and also Gronk for donating his artwork to our covers. Um, I'm just going to read a few poems from from my book, Other Countries. <coughs> The Summer of Jaws. It was the summer of Jaws. The beach loomed to a spooky soundtrack on the screen at the McHenry Cinema. A real shark came to the valley that summer. In the 115 degree heat of the Montgomery Ward's parking lot, a huge trailer with a life-size shark painted on the entirety of its sides lured viewers to a real-life Jaws, the big screen's shark doppelganger inside. Tia Lisa took my brother and me to see the shark on a scorching afternoon. She was the most Americanized of the Tias, the most permissive. She had let us watch Saturday Night Fever. The great terrible creature inside the freezing trailer was a marvel. Its jaws opened for us to gape into, with teeth as real as the fish stench, a cold, dead dream, visiting the stagnant enchantment of our childhood. This uh, poem is about um, my neighborhood in downtown. Um, and it's a testament to how much it's changed in the last um, couple of years, because this is a kind of nostalgic, actually. Um, the center of the city. There were blocks you avoided because the zombies occupied them. I became a witness. My innocent suburban Catholic Mexican boy eyes burned as the eyes of saints once burned with visions. I saw the pilgrims of death prostate themselves on the sidewalks, help and compassion they refused with contempt, worshiping at the altars of terror. They made you feel ashamed, inspired fear, because they had become untouchables, with a sort of power, the supremacy of witch doctors and criminals. Surely the disregard for dignity was a perversion, an illness, a deformity equal to the voodoo economics that had brought them thousand upon thousands to the streets. Long ago, the insane asylums had closed. But in the madhouse of downtown, the demented kept company, the rare believers in beauty. Gronk lived as a sovereign in a kingdom wasteland where the law was devil girl from Mars and Nino and Sevilla surreal dance numbers from cabaretera movies. The alleys were sanctuaries of heroin where crackhead hookers gave blowjobs to businessmen in Brooks Brothers suits. The ghosts had been downtown the longest, phantoms of shipwrecked Mexican memories, Maria Felix at the helm, the goddess who had never left the abandoned million-dollar theater. A French playwright, a friend of a friend, remembers beautiful Maria Felix in 1950s Paris, decked out in hats, jewelry, and Dior, like a classic courtesan. The courtesan ghost of downtown, and all the dead and dying in the streets were her children. And the lovers of beauty, the lost and searching, the dreamers, who drifted downtown were La Doña's ghost lovers, second billers, cuckolds, romantic fools. 
At night, Downtown was a horror movie deprived of an audience. Screams searched for the bodies that had housed them, and blood was another splash of color in the filthy Jackson Pollocks of the sidewalks. This is a poem titled Rambo Departs. The shadows I make on Paris sidewalks run off without me. Fields, barricades, burning cities, sunflowers, Christ, sperm, the incense of religion. The night is not darkness enough. A remote continent awaits me. Beyond erotic experiments, mercantile martyrdoms, bourgeois slaveries, France flowering with blood and cathedrals of reason imprisons my, my senses. I'm going elsewhere to be a violent child. And I'm just going to read one more poem. It's entitled Hollywood. <clears throat> Beautiful Tracy Greer lived stately in her madness, walking the halls at Crestwood Manor in an evening gown, a fur coat, high-heeled, insisting glamour, I'm sorry, I need to skip back a little bit. Um, well, actually, I need to start over. I forgot to tell you, Crestwood Manor is a um, mental institution in Modesto where I grew up and I worked there um, when I was in college in the summer and that's how I got to know this particular character who stayed in my mind because she had the most perfect skin and she was very glamorous and she was like this walking statue. I've never seen a walking statue after that. I've seen some people downtown try to be but they don't pull it off. Um, Beautiful Tracy Greer lived stately in her madness, walking the halls at Crestwood Manor in an evening gown, a fur coat, high-heeled, wearing diamonds and pearls like ginger on Gilligan's Island. Insisting glamour was a religion to mercilessly give oneself to. With her back to the yellow wall, statuesquely, she stood for hours, worshipping the void. I remember her flawless skin, her radiance, which was the same as the only star sighting I've had in LA. Walking home one day, on Spring Street, Christina Ricci sat in the passenger seat of a vintage American car, her eyes blacked out by large bug-like sunglasses, her glowing skin perfect and glowing, a star in the prison house of the city. Thank you. Hi, I'm Gail Ronsky, and uh, I guess my translator isn't here, so we were going to do sort of back and forth bilingual reading, but uh, probably stuck in traffic. Anyway, this is my new book, So Quick Bright Things, and um, in this book, characters from Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream are like stuck in Un Chien Andalou. <laughs> um, but, they are uh, Titania, the kind of the main character, is a Latina. So, I mean, I don't know, you know, how I did this. It, um, 
but I think it coheres. I mean, I think it works. Um, anyway, and I just wanted to say about what books is that uh, this is by far the best publishing experience I've had. You know, I've had books come out with several other presses, um, and this is totally 100% satisfying. And so um, thank you to all of the members of the Glass Table Collective. And um, we're looking toward the future. We're looking to grow, have some contests, consider other manuscripts. So, you know, onward. Um, I'm going to read a poem called Effusion 4. Yo quiero Shakespeare. And those of you who are like going to be grammatically picky, <laughs> I'm not saying yo quiero a Shakespeare because I'm talking about the body of work, not the person. Right? Okay. Yo quiero Shakespeare. The Spanish querer comes from querere, to seek, to inquire, but has evolved to signify as well desire. Thus, querer, to search amorously. I search Shakespeare amorously. The body of work, right? <laughs> Jade night, scenes of mad love, days laid down like rags around their feet. Titania stands with Oberon looking at the ruin of ruins in Mexico, a fountain in the middle of the room, nothing in the world but rain, nothing in the world but rain and rags and their two beings to rotating, totally washed. And this is the real place. Rub it. Rub it till it tears you apart. In imitation of a dream, Titania and Oberon discuss the discovery of their daughter's pornographic website. Peter Quince suggests that we are doomed to see the same play over and over. Here is where narration itself demands the erotic accoutrements of a striptease. We are bounded by the tyranny of pleasure of what is familiar, says Moonshine, wearing a hand-sewn cape of reflected sunlight. What scrapes the clouds? A digression, or Christopher Marlowe is dead. After the funeral procession, the actors return once again to the room. The poet killer is released from custody and joins them, a hero. What is a dead poet? A metaphor for textual violence? A type of censorship? A charm or trigger meant to move them to a different level of discourse altogether? The red curve of his mouth had been closed as if to refuse their kisses. And so they had buried him, a spent son at the nadir of all bottomless reckoning. Only his antlers remained. Irregular structures stretched up into darkness, the number of their branches corresponding precisely to the number of heartaches he had borne. And I'm going to read one more poem. <laughs> Alicia Partnoy, me traductora. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, afternoon of a fawn? Okay. Let me get my glasses. I'm sorry, you guys. I was writing a recommendation letter for a student too late and they really Okay. Bad. Afternoon of a fawn. Afternoon of a fawn. Oh, you are beautiful. <laughs> I know. Okay. You are much better than the highway. <laughs> <laughs> How beautiful his haunches. Cuán bella su grupa. How sleek his horns. Que sedoso sus cuernos. How awkwardly he moves along the dance floor. Cuán torpemente se mueve por la pista de baile. Clicking in the direction of Titania, who's wearing a diaphanous caftan and blue wings. Al trotecito en dirección a Titania, quien viste un caftan diáfano y alas azules. It's somebody's quinceañera. Son los sweet sixteen de alguien. <laughs> Fairy babies in tiaras, girls dressed like Lady Baltimore cake. Aditas con tiara, niñas vestidas como la torta de Lady Baltimore. <laughs> a flamenco house band plays Amor Milagroso. Un conjunto de rock toca Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> <laughs> but Titania has done the math, and simple vanity prevents her. Pero Titania ha hecho las cuentas, y la simple vanidad le impide from pursuing her Nijinsky like a pack of hunting dogs. Perseguir a su Nijinsky como jauría de perros cazadores. Into the woods behind the Belle Epoque pavilion. Rumbo al bosque detrás del kiosco de música estilo Belle Epoque. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> this is an art object that just so happens to be a book. Uh, how this came about was uh, one of the things, it's called a giant claw. Now, I had seen this movie as a kid called The Giant Claw. I wanted to reinterpret it but not necessarily follow the pattern of the film. I was going to not use any words. It was going to be almost a silent movie version of a film. So a lot of the imagery is done in panels, almost like a storyboard. But I even question the notion of this narrative. The narrative deviates. It goes many different directions. It has a beginning. And it does have an end. I do end it with the word fin, which is a little bit more open-ended than the end. So uh, that was the conditions of, for me to embark on this. And working with the glass table, I saw that a lot of the people that uh, are involved in this experiment with language. Well, I wanted to experiment visually in trying to place imagery that came from many different sources and weave this kind of a narrative, but rely primarily on uh, the visual. Now, there are some things that take place in the film that uh, I'm enamored by. Uh, 
One is, one of the characters' names is Mitch McAfee. And sometimes I feel I become him in many ways in real life. And there's also his uh, pal, her name is Sally, of course. And uh, she is referred to him, uh, referred to as Mademoiselle Mathematician. I love that. I love those two words coming together. It, to me, is a hint of glamour. So in the book, I actually have a visual close-up. So a lot of the things that I'm referencing is film language and incorporating them into the visual narrative of this, which I think sometimes the more important is the space in between as opposed to just the images, because sometimes it, you go in and out of a story. So that's basically what my book, um, A Giant Claw, is about. Are there any questions? <laughs> no questions. Oh my goodness, then you get it. Then I don't have to refer to my notes, which somebody asked earlier, can I read your notes? And I said, no, no one reads my notes. Um, because I do a lot of misspelling intentionally <laughs> so that nobody can really understand it. And that is also uh, one of the reasons why I do have like two great people that I think should come back and read an excerpt from the introduction to the book. So perhaps in English and in Spanish. Wow. <laughs> okay. Somebody has to devour her M&M's before she gets back up here. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, I wrote a foreword to this book, and uh, just because we're writers and we wanted some words in there, you know, it made us nervous, right? <laughs> so I'm just going to read my first paragraph, and and Alicia translated the introduction because what broke books is also que libros, <laughs> and uh, you know we really believe in in bilingual text. So I'll read the first paragraph. If language is a virus from outer space, as William Burroughs has it, then perhaps like the big loopy bird in the 1957 sci-fi movie, The Giant Claw, Gronk's inspiration for this book of drawings, the virus of language is trying to destroy us. In one way, it does destroy us, language. It gives us selfhood, identity, irreversibly separating us from our polymorphous, undifferentiated, synesthesiacal infancy. When we acquire language, we acquire the I, thus acquiring loneliness and disappointment. Mama is not part of us. She is a separate person. Kitty is not just a joyous sound to shout out into the universe, but a sound that refers to the orange tabby being chased from the crib. Breast, well, that becomes something much more complicated than the warm thing that feeds us. And like the most powerful viruses, once we get language, we can't get rid of it. We can never return to the preverbal state. We can never look at an object with pure vision without thinking of its name or filtering the picture through language nets, through value systems. Mitch McPhee, <laughs> McAfee, whatever, <laughs> the movie's protagonist will never find a cure for language or shoot language from the sky. Language won't sink to the bottom of the ocean, claws upright, twitching, unless perhaps you turn it into drawing. <laughs> ah, how many of you speak Spanish? 
Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> okay, I was trying to find out. It's too late. People are going to fall asleep. And, um, if I read a prefacio. Gronk dibuja un libro. Si el lenguaje fuera un virus del espacio exterior, como afirma William Burroughs, entonces quizás del mismo modo que el gran pájaro loco de la película de ciencia ficción de Giant Claw, La Garra Gigante, de 1957, que ha inspirado este libro de dibujos de Gronk, el virus del lenguaje está tratando de destruirnos. De algún modo nos destruye, el lenguaje nos da individualidad, identidad, irreversiblemente nos separa de nuestra infancia polimórfica, indiferenciada y sin estética. Cuando adquirimos el lenguaje, adquirimos el yo, adquiriendo por ende la soledad y el desengaño. Mamá no es ya una parte nuestra, es una persona aparte. Mi niño no es solamente un alegre sonido para gritar al universo, sino el sonido que se refiere a ese gato rayado que tenemos que espantar de la cuna. Pecho, en fin, se convierte en algo mucho más complicado que esa cosa tibia que nos alimenta. Y como sucede con los virus más poderosos, una vez que adquirimos el lenguaje, no podemos deshacernos de él. Plenty of wine, still some pretzels left, and uh, there are post free postcards. And uh, if you do buy a book and have an author sign it, please, even if you're the author's mother, tell them how you want it signed, because these are the kind of situations where authors go blank and forget everything. So, thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.